I want to begin today by introducing you to a boy from the 1980s. His name was Christopher. He developed an aggressive form of leukemia, and in his community in Arizona, he expressed through his parents that one day he dreamed of being a police officer. And when some of the people in law enforcement heard about this little boy who was so sick and had a dream of working in law enforcement, they decided to do something about it. And so they invited Chris to come and be an honorary sheriff for the day. And he got to go on patrol and he got to go behind the scenes at the jail and do all these things that a little boy who might want to be a police officer would always dream of. Friends, this is the Genesis story of an organization that you're probably familiar with called Make-A-Wish. And it's a ministry that has continued to flourish to this day. More modern versions and recent ones of this story include Nicole here, who has a brain tumor and yet dreams of being an Olympic skater. Or Zayden here, who has a heart condition, but desperately wants to be an astronaut. Or for little Annie here, who is in need of a kidney transplant, but wants to be a farmer. All of us are moved when we see the images of a child who is going through some sort of, not necessarily terminal, but a critical illness. And we're moved by communities that mobilize to gather around these children to help them to fulfill a wish or a dream. But the reason that I bring this up this morning is because I think there's something on a more fundamental level that we need to understand. And that is is that that Make-A-Wish points us to the reality that human beings are at their core Creatures who want, who have desire, who have dreams, who have ambitions. If you've ever met someone who lacked ambition, like I have when I've been in a care facility and I see a person who no longer thinks that they have anything else to live for, I'm here to tell you that in those moments we know that we are being less than human in those moments, are we not? And so today, I want to introduce you to someone who's going to help us to understand a theology of desire. What does it mean to wish? What does it mean to long for something? And his name is King Solomon. So I want to invite you to reach for a Bible that is either located in the pew rack in front of you or the one that you've brought with you. Um, One of our dreams here at the church is that we'd have a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. And so I encourage you to grab a Bible and to open it to 1 Kings chapter 3. And while you're doing that, let me put up the roadmap of where we've been. We've been on this journey that we call Quest, where we are exploring God's story together. So week in and week out, we've been engaging in like a 30 or 40 minute Bible reading during the week, and that the message draws off of the coming week's reading. And as we turn into the calendar month of May, we go from talking about the period of history where God has been building his kingdom particularly through King Saul and King David. 
And now we're getting to the point where the kingdom is going to be divided. The kingdom begins to unravel. The, king be- the kingdom begins to fall apart. And so we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're looking at the figure of Solomon this week. And I want to give you a little bit of a picture about where this message is going so it's easier for you to follow. We're talking about Solomon's wish today. And what you're going to see in today's passages are you're going to see the right question to ask. You're going to see the right answer to give. You're going to see the right motive to have. And then you're going to see a warning of how to make sure that your wish doesn't become a nightmare. And so 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to start talking about what the right question is to ask And we're going to start in the fourth verse. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. This is a massive act of worship with a whole lot of people, a whole lot of animals as well. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. The question that is at the core of what it means to be a human being is not just what are you thinking about, but what do you desire? In fact, if you look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus begins his ministry with the question to his disciples, what do you want? And by the time you fast forward to the end of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John ends with three times Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In other words, we tend to think of humans as being kind of like brains on a stick. We're minds that also happen to have a body. But even science is starting to catch up to the fact that there's more going on than the way that we typically divide up our body. Did you know that according to Scientific America that you have millions of neurons down in here and not just up here? In fact, some scientists refer to the neurons in your guts as your second brain that is involved in all kinds of different digestive processes. Have you ever had a gut feeling about something? That's actually literally true and not just a trick of your mind. That your intuition, your gut, and a part of your will biologically is lodged not just up here but down in here. You know how sometimes you read certain books and that you're different You can't help but see the world differently on the other side of it. That was true for me with this theological book that's called You Are What You Love by Jamie Smith. For you see, this book introduced me to a theology of desire. You know how St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee? Notice that St. Augustine did not say, our minds are confused until they understand thee. That may be true, but it doesn't get to the core of who we are as human beings. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Let's say that you are going to go buy a car, and I ask you in advance of buying that car, what kind of car do you want? If you're like most Americans, you're going to say four things. You're going to say, I want something safe, I want something reliable, I want something efficient, and I want something affordable. 
That's what you're going to say. And then you're going to go buy a car. And you're going to sit in the car. And you're going to say, this is a car that makes me feel a certain way. You're going to drive that car. And you're going to say, this car, this, is, this car is a part of who I am. It, it, it describes who I am and the way that I feel. The way that we end up actually purchasing cars has nothing to do with what we say we want, which is that it's safe, reliable, efficient, and affordable. It's because we are not in tune. We have divorced our thoughts from our wants. There's what you say you believe, and there's what you really believe that is revealed by the way that you live your life. And so God confronts Solomon by asking him that most basic of questions. What do you want? And the question is, have you come to term with what your desires are? And are those the right desires? And have you laid your true desires before God? So the right question is, what do you want? The, the next question is, what's the answer to the question about what you want? What is the right answer? Let's look at Solomon's answer here in verse 6. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child, do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. And so give your servant a what? A discerning heart. It is not often that I take issue with the NIV in terms of how they choose to translate something, but something is lost here when we say a discerning heart. For you see, the word that is used in the original Hebrew there to describe the nature of the heart of what Solomon asked for is this famous Hebrew word that is Shema. Everybody say Shema. This is one of the most important kind of cruxes of the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, a good Jew, first thing in the morning, says the Shema thinks about the Shema throughout the day, touches the Shema on the door frames of their house, says the Shema before they go to bed at night, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. This is the core of the Old Testament. Shema means to hear and obey at the same time. And so what Solomon is asking for when he says, Lord, give me a discerning heart. We don't, we, we misunderstand this where, where Solomon's like, Lord, I want you to make me really smart. Lord, I want you to make me really discerning and I, I want to be, be able to be shrewd with that. That is not what Solomon is, is saying here at this point. He is saying, Lord, give me a Shema heart. Give me a heart that hears you. Give me a heart that obeys you. Give me a heart that listens to you. Give me a heart that not only knows the difference between right and wrong, but a heart that enables me to do right, even in hard situations. That is what Solomon is asking for. 
and what God cannot wait but to give. And so Solomon, we find out that the right question is about desire. What do you want? And that the right answer is for us to have a heart that is for God, that desires God and his will and his way. And now we have to get to motive. And where we get to see this in Solomon's story is with the famous and uplifting story about cutting a baby in two. Let's read it together. Now two prostitutes came to king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone, and there was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. And so she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son that I had borne. The other woman said, no, the living son is mine, and the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, and the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. And the king said, this one says, my son is alive, and your son is dead, while the other one says, no, your son is dead, and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. And so they brought a sword for the king, and he gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman Do not kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard the verdict that the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. This is a raw, scary famous story from the Bible that is often depicted in lots of famous and fine art. Let me share one of those with you right now. (laughs) This is from the Lego Bible. Gotta love the bikinis on the, uh, the Lego figures here. Solomon determines who the right mother is because the mother is the one who has love. That's what real mothers do. They have love. They will the good of their child. They would rather their child live even if it was apart from them than to watch their child suffer or die. That is a mother's deepest wish, longing, desire. The motivation 
is love. And so the right question is, what do you want? The right answer is to have a heart for God. The right motive needs to be animated by our love for God and for others. But here's the thing, you can go through all of this process, say all the right things up to this point, and if you're not careful, the dream, the wish, can become a nightmare. And this is what happens to Solomon. King David taught him how to pray, taught him how to lead, intentionally geared resources so that when Solomon came into power, he could build the temple that David always wanted to build, that Solomon will pick up the mantle. And yet when it comes time for Solomon to get married, he becomes enticed and enthralled by the potential of a political alliance with Egypt, Israel's sworn enemy, the one that enslaved them for 400 years. And so he marries a queen of Egypt, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. One of the things that's lost on us when we read the Bible, when you read chapter six and seven in First Kings, scholars will be very quick to point out to you that Solomon spends more time and more money on his palace than he does his greatest accomplishment of building the temple of the Lord. And that by the time you get to some of the later chapters of Solomon's reign, he continues to build political alliance out of political alliance. And he does so by marrying more and more women. The Bible tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That makes me tired just even saying it. And in the very verse after the Bible reveals that to us in chapter 11, it says this. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon knows how to say all the right things. He knows how to ask for all of the right things. He sees love when it's right before his very eyes. And yet it all unravels. I want to show you a picture of somebody earlier in their life. Who is this? And here's another image of him, the famous image on the cover of the Walter Isaacson biography. Don't know if you know this about your pastor, but I'm kind of an Apple nerd, love Apple products. It's one of my forms of idolatry. And so the month that this biography was out, I had to read it. There's many amazing twists and turns in Steve Jobs' life. One of them was the sheer fact that Steve Jobs was almost never alive. 
And that is, is that his mother, his birth mother, is in the highest risk categories for not taking a pregnancy to its full term. She was really young. She was single. And you look at all of the risk categories and the demographics of her life and in the time in which she lived, you say there's a pretty good chance that Steve Jobs would have been aborted. In fact, later in his life, Steve intentionally sought out his birth mother in order to be able to tell her thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be alive and thank you for, for sending me to be adopted. You can imagine what a poignant moment that that would have been. And you can also imagine my shock while I'm reading his biography to discover that there was a time when Steve Jobs, knowing this fully, got his girlfriend pregnant and encouraged his girlfriend to have an abortion. the hypocrisy and the juxtaposition of that is incredible. With all of his resources, with the sheer fact of his existence, with all of his creativity and his genius, He would suggest what? I tell you that story to tell you that because if it can happen to somebody as smart as Steve Jobs, if, if he can fall off the rails, so can you, so can I. And my friends, I need to tell you that as your pastor, Lately, I am growing so weary of people who can say the right things about God and who think the right things about God and yet their hearts are far from Him and the carnage that I witness in families, in workplaces, and in communities because people do not have that Shema heart and are not motivated by Love, it's destructive, and it needs to stop. What is it that you want? Where is your heart? Do you have real love? How you answer those questions determines the path of dreams and the path of nightmares. You need to have a heart, Jack, and so do I. Let us pray. Help us to understand, O oh God, that 
Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so we pray that our hearts will not be divided, that they will not be torn, that our hearts will not long for the sake of longing, but that they will find their true longing and their rest in you. Forgive us for our disordered hearts, our fragmented loves. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness so that all these things may be given to us as well. Father, help us to keep our hearts in check and for our dreams to be your dream for our life and that our passion for life and for love would mark us every day of our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.